Hi, I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop, and welcome to the Heroes in Our Midst podcast. So cool you stopped by for a listen. Now, when you see that today's guest is Constable Jeff Shear, you may be thinking, wait a second. I thought they were all about athletes as heroes. And for the most part, the majority of our guests have been athletes. But in thinking of incredible humans, we just had to go beyond our sport-filled circles. If you're talking performance under pressure and needing strength and resilience to carry out your occupation, well then, we need look no further than Constable Jeff Shear. You see, Jeff joined the RCMP in 2010 at the young age of 20 years old, the youngest member in his troop, by the way. He became engaged in frontline policing to start, and after years of preparation and a demanding selection process, he would realize his dream and became a member of the D-Division Emergency Response Team in Manitoba. That was in 2015. Oh, and he's also a rappel master. By 2017, he was a full-time member of the emergency response team in Winnipeg. And since he didn't have quite enough to do, responding to some of the most complex and dangerous situations, he followed his passions when not in uniform as well and became a certified personal trainer and sports nutrition specialist. So, there comes the sports. He hopes to represent Canada in the 2022 World Police and Fire Games being held in the Netherlands. He's run a sub-five-minute mile and has been seen deadlifting 500 pounds. And I'm told he did that all on the same day. Seriously? This guy's quest to protect others and inspire people to be the best versions of themselves has no finish line. So every day... He wakes up eager to get to his day-to-day. And what exactly does that look like? Like, what does he actually do every day? Well, I asked him to explain exactly what an ERT does. And so begins the story of Constable Jeff Shear. ERT basically stands for Emergency Response Team. And I guess the easiest way that I'd be able to explain it is if you think about what a SWAT team might be, and that's a term that had originally comes from the States, stands for Special Weapons and Tactics. And as, as a member on an ERT team, we're basically a group of highly trained RCMP officers who are you know, capable of employing specialized weapons, equipment, and tactics in order to resolve extremely dangerous incidents or critical scenarios. And, you know, ultimately what we're trying to do is resolve those problems while minimizing the threat to both the public and, and other police officers in the safest manner that we can. Wow. So would I be correct in saying when it gets the most dangerous, they call your team? Yeah, you know, exactly. It's when there's no one else, you know, at least from a domestic standpoint, when there's no one else to, to look to, you know, they're going to basically call in an emergency response team and the critical incident program as a whole. And we're going to come and provide additional tools and and get that problem solved. Tell me about your training and and the training to become a member of an emergency response team. Yeah, that's, and you know, the the training is extremely intense and I could probably talk to you on training alone for literally the next couple hours. So I don't know where exactly to begin, but in order to join one of these specialized teams, you do have to first become a regular member within the RCMP. And, you know, that that's six months of training at the Depot Training Academy in Regina. 
And, you know, once you finish that and you identify that specializing and maybe having a, an opportunity to join one of these teams, two or three years into your service, once you've kind of established yourself and learned to be a really good investigator or whatever your, your primary job might be at the time, then that's when, you, you know, you can start looking at attending one of these selection courses and to explain to the listeners what a, a selection is, I guess it, it'd be kind of be like, you know, a one week long boot camp, maybe, but it, honestly, Michelle, it's more than a boot camp because it's, you know, what, what they're looking for in an ERT member is they're also testing people both cognitively, emotionally, mentally, in addition to all the physical aspects as, as well, and really trying to draw out what's the best in, in their characters. And it's, it's just a week-long interview process. From there, if, say, you're successful at the selection there, you would proceed into an understudy program and where you still are doing your everyday job, whichever detachment or posting you may be at. And you're, you know, once or twice a month coming out and training with that team who's agreed to bring you on and understudy you and start to actually educate you on some of the tactics and the skills that are going to be required for your, you know, kind of the end goal, which is ultimately a two month long course. They call it the basic ERT assaulter course in Ottawa, in the national capital there. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I can, you know, I think about it now, you can almost draw quite a few parallels to some of the athletes that you've had on the show in that, you know, when going to the Olympics, there's every step of the way, there's all these hurdles, all these challenges. And at any point you can either be removed from the entire thing or not be successful. And that can be extremely challenging. So that's even while you're in training, right? I mean, if you don't measure up and is the physical component of the training also a part of this? Like where does that sort of fit in and, and what kind of stuff do you have to do that way? Does that fit into this as well? Yeah, the, the, the physical component is, is part of the entire package. And, and that's because the, the job itself can be extremely physically demanding and taxing. How everything is assessed, you know, it's extremely objective, right? When tests are administered and given, they're always done for a purpose and for a reason. So on the teams, a lot of times, you know, we're expected to, you know, carry heavy equipment. If you think about you know, our armored vests, mm -hmm. some of the, the, the heavy firearms that we might be using or, the, you know, breaching equipment, things like this. And wearing all this gear is taxing, plus then being able to then function in a manner, you know, be able to say climb stairs if you need to get up to multiple different stairs. Or in a rural setting, you might be out in the bushes for hours, days at a time. So you have to be in, in physical shape in order to, you know, not deteriorate and be successful as a teammate out there yeah so that's kind of the baseline for physical standards and it, I kind of look at it as a bit of that's that's the baseline like you always want to start something like this you know in shape so that that's the last thing you have to worry about because you know controlling one's you know being in shape that's within our own control so then when you come in already prepared then you can focus 
on kind of everything else, which is going to be really important because there's so many other aspects that are being looked at and assessed in order to make kind of the total package. Jeff, give us, if we're talking emergencies, you know, and I'm starting to just imagine all the things that you must have to do. Can you um, maybe answer our imaginations and not even getting specific, but what kind of emergencies are we talking here? And scenarios. They can be any number of things, Michelle, which is what makes our job so unique in that we never know what problem we're going to solve. Mm-hmm. It, it could it could be something similar to last time or it could be entirely different. And, you know, we're, we're talking about complete crises as far as, you know, if, if you want to imagine something that's in progress, like something as serious as an active shooter that would that might be you know, in a school or in a mall or in any residence, it really, that threat is still active. And especially as we talk about the involvement of firearms, because that's when the threat and the risk assessment for everybody goes up, the public, other members, and no fault of other members either. It's, they don't necessarily have the same courses, the same training and tactics and equipment as what we do. So then that's when, you know, the incident commander is going to get involved and deploy the team to basically come and give them a hand. Incredible. I mean, I have to say from the outside looking in, so you're dealing on a daily basis with stuff and forgive me for saying this, but stuff that movies are made of. Sometimes I'm like, really? Like I I get paid to do my job. It it is such a great opportunity and I still get to do what I love and help people while at it. It's fantastic. Hey, Jeff, you have to you have to tell us how you see it that way. I mean, a lot of us, why we're not in it is we are we might be afraid of or we might think this high, far too high risk. That would be scary for us. Um, well, we don't have the training, so we can't even put our heads there. Right. I'm sure your perspective comes from all your years of training and experience. So that makes sense to me. But maybe this is where we go back to your story, your life story, because I think we do think of people like you who put themselves potentially in harm's way to help others. You called it an opportunity. I think we want to know what makes people like you tick because we're really thankful for people like you, Jeff, who yeah. come when we are in emergency and in crisis. There are people who know what to do and know how to help us. So where did this start for you? Like, did you always as a little kid know you wanted to be a cop? Like when you grew up, was this going to be your path or take us back there? Jeez. Yeah, that, that is a good question. I guess if I, if we really want to start going back in time, (laughs) I, I, as, as a young kid, I grew up in Regina, Saskatchewan, right? So I started my whole life in, in the Prairie provinces here. And I can always remember, you know, just playing outside lots, being outside, being in the bushes, running around, uh, playing army per se, in the same thing in the snow, right? I'm building snow castles, all these different things. And as I grew older, I almost feel lucky because, you know, graduating from high school, everyone's, ah, you know, I'm not sure what I'm going to be. I don't know what I want to do. Maybe this, maybe that. Ah, I'm going to go travel around a little while, maybe. Whereas I feel very fortunate because right from the get-go, from literally as young as I can remember, I knew that I wanted to be a police officer and specifically I wanted to be a member on this ERT thing. Wow. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I think that, (laughs) you know, a lot of people, when they ask, you know, why did you want to be a police officer? You know, a lot of people will say, you know, because I wanted to, to help people. And for sure, that is absolutely part of it. But 
to be entirely honest with you, I, I think when I was younger, I just, I thought it was the coolest thing. And I just wanted to be like a spy or a commando or something, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and then as you get older, you you start Googling how to become one of the, there's no career path for that. So then my next kind of thing was basically that, well, this is kind of like the closest thing to what I just love as a kid. So that's probably what's right for me. Incredible. Well, and then you were a little bit ahead. Obviously it helped knowing you knew boom, what you wanted to be. And so at 20 years old, joined the RCMP. Not a lot of people get to do that at that age. Tell us a little bit about that. So finishing high school, I right away started universities at the University of Regina for police studies. So I thought, okay, this will be, you know, something I can work towards. And then at the same, at the same time, most people that I knew were of the opinion that there was pretty much zero chance of, of me getting in on, you know, my first application just because how young I was. And I figured, well, I might as well give it a shot anyways. So I actually submitted my, my application package at 19 and you kind of go through all these different you know, job interviews and, and polygraphs, which is a lie detector test, physical testing and, and interviews. And I, I end up being successful and they end up saying that, yeah, we're going to send you to Depo, which is the RCMP training Academy in Regina. And I, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. And was it everything you thought it would be when you got there? What were you expecting and what was reality of what RCMP training really is? Even when I had the letter of acceptance, Michelle, I, it was a total wake-up call because up until that point, my life was kind of like I was just kind of existing. I was floating through school. You know, I did play some sports, but nothing at a super competitive level. And then all of a sudden, like I have an opportunity at my dream. I have an opportunity to pursue something that I feel worthwhile and, and worthy towards my purpose. So I, I specifically remember it standing in front of a mirror when I was 20 years old being like, okay, you have more to give and, you know, it's time. So at, at that exact moment, I kind of made a commitment to myself, you know, that I was going to give 110% into every single thing that I did. And I was basically taking, you know, being committed to excellence. And then, yeah, I walked into depot and that was another wake up call because, everybody was older than me and looking back on it now I was the youngest in the troop yeah. and the average age of a student or a cadet going through was about 27 which is interesting because there's a wide range of experiences at the academy and in my in my troop you know there was anywhere from my age 20 years old to a gentleman who was 54 years old so we had a really good mixture of experience in, in that in that uh, group. Jeff, could you, could you name what qualities you think it was that you stood out and they said, you know what, we're going to take, we don't usually take 20 year olds. We're going to take this one. You know, at the time, I'm not sure. I, I, I really believe that it had something to do with, with, you know, my interview. Maybe I just tricked them. I, I don't know. Uh, I certainly feel super grateful and super lucky that, that I was given that opportunity. And that's why, you know, I try and, and work every shift that I'm on to, you know, basically, basically justify and prove that, yes, that was a good choice. And, and that was the right choice. But let me tell you that even in depot, I was not so certain myself because I was very behind in life experience and it showed. 
right off the bat. You know, we're talking about they would put you through different scenarios that would try and emulate and replicate situations that a police officer might go to in real life. And I wasn't picking up on nuances or subtleties that other people in, in the group were picking up on. And just because I was so much younger, I didn't have those same experiences yet. So what I lacked in life experience, I think I ended up making up in, in, in sheer desire and determination. Like nobody wanted this more than me. And and I guess like an example of that would be is, you know, just you worked from, you know, eight to five kind of thing every day at the Academy. And then you would have your time off in the evenings and every single second kind of thing I spent at the Academy, it was devoted to my purpose of trying to, you know, achieve what I was going for here. And a lot of the other people kind of thought that I was out of my mind. They're like, what do you mean you're not going home on the weekends? I live just down the block and I didn't go home once. Everyone was like, are you crazy? And, but for me, it just made absolute sense. I wasn't here to, you know, go back home and socialize. I, I had literally, I was completely prepared. Horse blinders were on and I was dedicated and kind of very disciplined to do the best I possibly could and, and lead some other people through uh, the academy. Incredible. Well, you sound like an Olympic athlete, by the way. You referenced, you know, uh, when you hear stories of athletes and I, you absolutely lived your life that way, which is super encouraging for everyone who hears a story like this. That's a recipe for success to focus and to be so passionate. I have a feeling just from these few minutes of us chatting that your love of this and your passion for what you wanted to become had to have shone through. I think they knew that you were in, you know? Um, I think some people probably go there and are interviewed and they're still not quite sure if this is where they want to be. And probably your being so sure and being confident was like, okay, this kid, this kid wants this. So, you know, I, I think that's that's also pretty cool and pretty telling of your personality and, and just your passion and how you weren't going to let them not know it. You just feel like you had this incredible opportunity, Yeah. right? Yeah. And for me, that was, I had to, this was, I felt like my one shot. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, and the other thing that I suppose ended up happening is, have you ever heard of burning the boats? No. So, you know, I, I reflect on it now. And this concept of burning the boats is basically comes from a, a, a Spanish captain who sailed over to Mexico in the 1500s. And he was trying to, con- to to basically conquest and conquer these Aztecs. When he landed, what he did was, was he burned his entire fleet of boats. And the entire purpose of that was to send a message to his army that, look, we are here and we are here for a purpose. And that is to win. There's no going back. The, bir- the boats are gone. And looking back on it now, that is kind of what I, what I, what I basically did because before I had even gone to depot, I was, I sold everything. I sold my car. I sold, you know, I didn't have a whole lot at 19, 20 years old, but I had to get rid of that so that I can, again, there'd be no distractions to take, to take us away from our focus and the task at hand. And I truly think that when people are really hungry for something, they should consider taking a mentality like that and, basically, you know, proverbially burning the boats, like there's no going back. We're all in. What we imagine RCMP training to be, I imagine it being, we have to make you 
tougher than nails, mentally strong because of the situations that you are going to face. Uh, was that the mentality there or what did you take away or what would you tell someone if they said, hey, I want to do that too? Um, and they said, what's the overall feel? What is training like? How would you tell us about that and about your time there? Really good question. And I can't speak as much to, you know, what the academy would be like now. I went through 10 or 11 years ago now at this point. I do know that they have made a lot of changes. But from when I went through, I can say that it was an absolutely incredible experience. And we're talking about a place that has schooled and trained you know, every single member of the Mounted Police. And as you know, it's our national police organization. So we have a very historic kind of past and they have, they know what they're doing there. Basically, they have it down to a science. It's an incredible experience. And I, what I would tell the listeners is it's, it's a combination of all these different things. So you have your different applied police sciences classes where basically you're going in and you're learning, you know, the, the actually to become a police officer, the law behind it, what it entails, how to interact with people and go to calls. And then you also have all the hands and feet skills. So police defensive tactics, where you're learning to defend yourself and manipulate your different tools on, on your belt and you know, make arrests with handcuffs. And, and there's a driving courses that you participate in so that you can become very safe, very proficient drivers because you're gonna be put in some situations that a normal driver or motorist might not experience, right? When we say activate the emergency equipment. There's the firearms portion where you're taught and instructed to safely handle and effectively use firearms. And then what you're kind of hinting at is actually the drill and deportment class. And that's where, yeah, you're, you're kind of learning to be able to put up with scrutiny and what drill is actually teaching you. And a lot of people, I will have to say, you know, they didn't like drill because, you know, you may be being yelled at or, or they thought it was menial, you know, because you didn't have quite the right polish on your boots. Your, your shirt wasn't, wasn't quite ironed, but I really understand what they were trying to instill in us there now looking back at it. Right. And that was discipline, which is such an important trait, right. To be able to stand up in adversity in, up to adversity and still be disciplined when maybe someone is yelling at you or maybe someone is saying not nice things. You have to still maintain your control and composure. So I really found a lot of benefit in that. And, and just Depp overall was a fantastic experience and a good learning opportunity. Yeah, sounds so all-encompassing. And so, um, you know, you graduate, you, you, you're, you're ready to go, and, and uh, you, you moved around a little bit, as I understand a, a lot of RCMP, that's sort of the deal. You do get moved around a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah, Michelle, that's exactly correct. Why is that? Why doesn't a, a police officer that comes to our community, why don't they stay for 25 years? That's a good question. And I think when, when you think about that, when I have the experience of all these different communities, it makes me a more well-rounded officer, a more well-rounded of the public, because what I learn at one posting, I might not have learned at another one. Or when I, when I go to a different posting, I might experience different things. And, you know, when I first applied to the RCMP back, you know, just when I had graduated high school, I, I, again, I didn't, 
I didn't sign up for a municipal forest. I didn't sign up for like an, uh, you know, say Regina city police, Saskatoon city police. For me, it had to be the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And there is a few reasons behind that. It, they just epitomize what my personal belief of, of that police officer is, right? They're a national organization and they're, they're known worldwide. You know, you see uh, a member in a red surge, people from all over the world can identify what, what that is. And to answer your question, that's, that's part of it is as, as a member of the Mounties, you have so many different opportunities that you might not otherwise, right? Like we're talking, we have members who specialize, their job is to ride horses, right? And to ride them very well and to represent Canada as part of the musical ride. You know, members who are forensic specialists, if you're incredibly scientifically minded, maybe, you know, we have members posted across seas to, you know, peacekeep and do overseas deployments, all these different opportunities, which I was aware of and, and knew that I wanted to be a part of. Okay. So where was your first, your first job? And then lead us through where you went from there. Sure. Graduated at the Depot Training Academy and they give you your posting. And for me, I was being posted to the Paw Manitoba. So that is what first brought me to Manitoba. And I've been here ever since. Yeah, yeah for sure. And it, it was, it was awesome. And once again, I found myself being struck with the, you know, a slap of reality, basically, uh, leaving home 20 years old, never having been on my own going up to this community and now having to, you know, I had to having to buy a house right away, a brand new police officer, having no idea really what I was doing. Cause of course the real world is always different than, than what, what you might necessarily learn. Right. And so, yeah, I just had to get, get right into it in the paw. And it was a really good experience. I spent, you know, five years up there becoming, you know, the best police officer I could learning to investigate and as soon as I got there, though, I still had my dream in mind of be becoming an ERT member. So I was immediately, you know, when I wasn't working, I was starting to work on my skills and preparing so that, again, if someday I would have that chance, then I would be ready. Do you have to work as a police officer for a while before you can become what you are now, part of the emergency response team? You know, to answer that question, effectively, yes. There are a, a very, very small few who might have previous skills or qualifications that would then, you know, basically could potentially graduate straight from depot and be, and be, you know, transferred into one of our units. And that is an extremely rare case. doesn't happen very often, but for the most part, yeah, because we, even on the teams now, right. We, we want, you know, our, our team members to first become amazing investigators, leaders of their detachment, develop all those foundational skills, which then translates down the road for, for some of these other problems. Yeah. So you're in the paw for five years, you said. Greatest challenge, being a young cop. Jeez, let me tell you, that was there was tons of challenges up, up north for myself. Mm. But what stands out immediately for me is getting there and graduating from the academy, 20 years old, I was 165 pounds. Okay. I basically looked like a walking stick. And, and, and trust me, everyone who I dealt with realized that. So I, I was very much, you know, the, the new guy, I was the rookie and, and, you know, which ended up causing me to get 
I was always, people were fighting me and it was really challenging. So to respond to that, how I kind of dealt with that was I had to become much better at communication because, okay, like if, if these people are all ever wanting to fight me, I need to be able to de-escalate situations and communicate with them the best I know how. In the meantime, while basically trying to, to gain some weight and, and um, gain confidence, which also comes along with what we would refer to as officer presence. So then I started going into this full on, you know, weight training and just absolutely eating everything I possibly could. And, you know, years later, as it develops and, and as I get stronger and whatnot, your confidence goes up and people who you deal with on the street, that's instantly kind of recognized. Because what happens with, and I don't know if you realize this, but what people do, you and myself included, we always are constantly sizing each other up. Mm-hmm. And that's based upon our past perceptions, our experiences. And that's what happens out in the field too, to members. So, you know, subjects that we might be dealing with, they're taking a first look at that officer that arrives to deal with them. And they're trying to make an assessment whether this person is capable or not, whether they should be listening to them or not, and whether or not they should even be respecting them, which again is why it's so important that, you know, the membership is, you know, in good shape, is having good deportment and is incredibly professional. Yeah, that carries a lot of weight. Okay, so after the PAW. So while I was in the PAW is when I ended up attending that first selection. Right. And I started my entire process and it was literally years in the making to, to get to that point. Once I graduated in the end of the Erd Assaulter course, I returned back to the PAW, finished part of my posting, and then I was transferred down to St. Pierre Jolie. And, you know, across the country, our ERT teams, there's a combination. Some teams are made up entirely of full-time members where that's their job every single day. And some teams like ours here in Manitoba is what we refer to as a hybrid team. So some of us are full-time and some of our team members are part-time. And now these part-time members have a a huge burden because not only do they have to work their substantive day job at their home detachment and excel at it, I might add, they also have to do ERT on the side of their desks and it's very demanding. There's very strenuous training requirements. So it it, it is very challenging. I've experienced it when I was in St. Pierre doing both detachment and ERT. And so that was some of the challenges. Now you aren't in St. Pierre anymore. Lead us to present day. You're in Winnipeg. Yeah. So I, again, learned a lot more while I was in St. Pierre and it was a completely different style of policing, which just speaks to kind of like that question that we were talking about earlier, right? Which is such a great thing about the forest where you get to have these diverse experiences and members. I took a transfer to Winnipeg here and now I'm currently on the full-time segment of our hybrid ERT team. And that's where I've been since. So tell me what um, a day in your life is like being uh, one of the ERT full-time members. Um, Is every day at work a high stress situation? Like, I'm not sure there'd be one call that would be sort of like, oh, this is going to be such a nice call. (laughs) You know, I can't imagine. You're pretty much guaranteed you're going into a high stress situation. Tell me what your, your work days are like. <laughs> exactly. And you completely hit the nail on the head on that one. You know, they're, they're, they're always serious calls. Yeah. And I think 
for us a lot of times it's just a different scale so within our scale there's still going to be a level of you know calls that we are more comfortable with or ones that are you know extremely risky to and we need to be you know very bring out more people bring out more resources whatever the case may, may be so there is a little bit of a scale there and it's it's a unique job because half the time, I don't know what I'm, I never know what I'm going to be doing a lot of times, right? right. You might go into work expecting that, yeah, I'm going to be doing some training today. I'm going to get onto the range and, and do some firearms training. And then a call comes in right away, right? Oh, and then and then you're off or you're required for some sort of operation and, and immediately you're basically hitting the road and driving because another unique thing is that, you know, we're responsible for the entire province. So we might operate if one of these calls comes in, we're going to it, whether that be by vehicle, by plane, however, we're responding. And, you know, including this, if, if in Winnipeg too, we can still obviously take calls in Winnipeg. Winnipeg Police Services has their own team as well for things like that. We can work with them and assist if required. Mm-hmm. And if there isn't an active call that's happening, then that's when the team is, is out. You know, we're developing our profiles. We're training we're mentoring the other members and we're always planning and preparing basically for that next big thing, for that next critical incident and constantly pursuing to get a little bit better, right? We're just trying to move that needle a little bit each thing, every single day so that the team kind of improves and grows as the time goes on, because, you know, there's people out there and, and they're always maybe preparing as well. And, and developing different techniques of breaking the law or of, you know, being threatening towards the public. So we have to try and keep up with that and, and our tactics have to evolve accordingly. As much as the masterminds on the good side of things are working, others are working as well. And you guys are obviously working to not just keep up with that, but get ahead of that. And I, I appreciate hearing that. I think my next question might be impossible to answer. unless. Oh, no. So how's that for a, for a lead up? Um, It might mean you have to go scenario to scenario and I won't expect that, but I would love to know what is the measure of success when you are on a call? And maybe that means a specific example of a type of call where you felt you were successful in what you guys were called to do and what you ended up being able to accomplish? Good question. And it is going to be call dependent, depending on what specifically we're going to. And I think I know what you're kind of talking about where it is hard to answer because when you have these, you know, we're, you know, just like, just like athletes, just you, we are our own hardest critics. So even though the overall result of a call might be perceived successful. Let me tell you that we sometimes just tear each other apart as far as what we could have done better and what we should have done here, what we should have done there. That was a failure when, you know, no one might have gotten hurt, but you know, what if this happened, then maybe we wouldn't have been successful. So it's kind of this always developing situation where we're just, we're never feeling successful. Right? We're always trying to be a little bit better, or at least that's how a lot of times I'm thinking of it in my head. And to really to say as well, it's so important, you know, as soon as anyone, whether it be a member of the public or someone on our team or in our organization itself, if they are hurt, then that is instantly, you know, mission kind of not successful because what could we have done differently? 
So Jeff, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with being in um, a job where you have the opportunity to help people, but there's always something more you could do because by the time you're called in, things have escalated already, right? There's things that probably already have happened that were out of your control that weren't positive. How do you deal with that inside? How do you prepare for that? How do you head to a call and ensure that you won't fall apart after every call you make or you'll be able to live another day to have the opportunity to help again? Yeah, and that, you know, we could definitely spend the rest of the afternoon talking about that very question. So to start kind of, unpacking it. I I think I'll start with the fact that, you know, if you compare us to athletes and you can imagine an athlete kind of goes into every situation, they have a lot of preparing to do as well. Mm -hmm. And how do they go about doing that? Right. So they're training, right. They're mentally preparing for the moment when it happens, whether that be visualizing, right. They're seeing the sports psychologist and us, it's the exact same thing. We have to be training. We have to be preparing for that 1% of the, of that 1% that might not even happen. And we're just constantly preparing for it and training for it. Because if you're not training, what the worry is, is complacency is going to come start knocking at the door. And that's the scary part because as a police officer, if you have complacency, knocking at the door and you start to let some of your defenses down, you know, you let yourself slide, you know, fitness wise, maybe, or skills wise, you're not as competent on the firearm. All of a sudden you become less capable. And then when your moment does come, you might not be prepared. Mm -hmm. And that's the scary thing because with us not being prepared or not being ready for that moment could mean, you know, someone gets hurt or, or even dies. So that's one of the biggest challenges and it's hard because we don't know when that's going to come. You know, sometimes I'm, you know, I think about the top level athletes and they, as hard as that would be to, and whatever sport it is, you know, whether they're standing on top of a diving board, getting ready to make their Olympic jump, you know, whether they're, lining up as a team on the courts, at least you guys have an idea when that moment is. We don't, so it can be super hard. And that's why it's just so important that training has to be there. And that's what motivates me every day because I, that is a great fear, right? I don't want to be put in that situation where my moment comes mm-hmm. and I'm not prepared or the team as a whole isn't prepared. Yeah. Have you ever been in a scenario where you're afraid or you, or do you not allow yourself to feel afraid? How does that work after all your training? I know you would deal with being afraid differently than I would. I mean, I've had some mental training for sports and dealing with the stress of thousands of people watching you make one serve or one play. I can understand the concept, but it wasn't life or death for me ever. There must be some scenarios where you don't know that, as you've said, you don't know what you're going to face for sure. Have you ever been scared? You know, I, I will answer that 100% honestly. And, and that is absolutely, and, yeah. you know, maybe some people don't, don't feel f- fear or something like that. And I don't know, I might almost call them out for, for lying or something because it, there are those moments and kind of a big, a big fear of portion of that kind of leads into back what I was just saying. And that's of ultimately 
you know, looking to my left, looking to my right and seeing my teammates there and letting them down. That's almost one of the, you know, one of the bigger fears I have of not being prepared and not uh, being where I need to be and, and, and helping them so that I can ultimately help the public, right? And how we try to mitigate that is by inoculating ourselves to stress, right? Through training. So we, we have challenging training. We do difficult evolutions so that when the, you know, when real scenarios do come, we already have the previous experiences of dealing with some different hard things already that, okay, wait a minute, I've already gone through, you know, two weeks of being outside and, and I know that I can do this now. So you're kind of drawing on past experiences. And then within our training itself, of course, is we try and make it as real as possible to raise the heart rate, right? Yeah, I can, you can only imagine how high the heart rates can get to try and inoculate ourselves to then be ready and to deal with those fears when they inevitably do come, right? We're talking things like breathing, something as simple as that try and lower the heart rate you know we are taught right from the academy combat breathing slow things down and try and regain control of your emotions of your fine motor skills so that you can make the good decisions in those hard situations um we often see athletes you know when we watch them at the olympics or whatever they have moments where they're sort of like you know they close their eyes and they they breathe or they prepare themselves or they visualize how they're going to enter the competition. Do you have some actual literal tools that you do or self-talk that you do that helps you enter a high risk, high stress situation? Yeah, absolutely. And that is such a good parallel that you, that you draw. And because there's so many similarities, every single operator on the team is, is going to be different in how he or she prepares. (laughs) And I think for me personally, it's, it's always visualization is a big one, having that camaraderie. But as I go up to a call and it's that moment is coming per se, you might not always know where that moment and you're just kind of thrown into it, depending on if it's just instant. But if you do have a second, that's when I slow things down and I take that one giant breath and I go over a couple things in my head of what I need to do to be successful, what the team needs to be to do successful And then my entire world just zeroes in on the task at hand. And I find that really helps me to, to kind of ground. What is the average, uh, what's the word average lifespan of uh, someone on an emergency response team? How often do people stay on a team like that and, and do that job, do the job you're doing? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. And it's kind of evolved since even I've been on the team because, you know, I'm not sure what the public might have as far as perceptions wise, but sometimes people tend to think that, you know, that the SWAT members or the ERT members, you know, we're just a bunch of gorillas that come in and smash around, and you know, carrying these big rams and tools and everything. When in, in actual fact that that's not the case where we kind of pride ourselves on, on being very competent and thinking problem solvers. And we want all sizes of people. Because it's not just about, you know, being the biggest, strongest, burliest person in the world. On the teams, we understand that diversity is a strength. So having different sizes of people, different backgrounds of teammates and skill sets ends up lending to be able to better attack these problems. 
So to kind of answer your question, a lot of the older ERT members that kind of first were the, the forefathers of the program, they, they, yeah, they, they ended up doing a lot of physical training, a lot of strenuous things. And, you know, I think their bodies might've been, you know, beat up quite a bit. So I don't know as far as what, how they're feeling now, but with the way we're running things, as long as you physically take care of yourself, there's no reason that there isn't some sort of role, some sort of activity and, and that you can provide to the team, even when you're older. So, you know, 10 years, I know guys have been on the team for 15 years. It's all kind of relative to, to if you still want to do it and if you still love doing it, right? Because as soon as that passion dies, or as soon as you're no longer, your head is no longer in it, then, and then it's no longer for you. It's no longer safe for you to be on a team. Have you ever been in a situation where it's gone really badly and you've had to take some time and recover from a, an emergency situation that didn't go as planned? The team has been involved in some, some pretty hard situations for sure. And myself in, included. And I think, you know, as we start to learn about mental health and all these different things, the force is just doing a better and better job as it, as we go along as well of taking care of their members and, you know, whether that be mean, you know, stepping down from the team for a little while or, or taking that, that rest and recovery to proverbially a little empty some of your glass. Cause you're right. Like at some point when that glass gets full and you might not be able to handle some of the stress and, and that, and that's okay. Like, like take the time, recover, reflect and rest uh, I've been fortunate that I, I still feel you know, good, mentally healthy and strong. And I think a lot of that comes back to being proactive with these things, right? Having a healthy lifestyle is so important. And that is not just with on the teams, obviously, we can all use that in our day to day lives, right? And I kind of think of that as, you know, are we nutritionally eating good food are we sleeping as much as we can and then are we actually training our bodies and and moving basically and all three of those things i always kind of visualize as being affecting one another and it just builds the more you do of that they, they all kind of play into one another you you're so well thought out and i'm sure that many in your field have been well thought out and how they are going to prepare and approach it's so great to hear that that's a part of all the training that you do. Now, Jeff, you are taking your training, you've taken it to another level. And I think, I think many of us have heard that there are police and fire games. You're doing some of that. I mean, you're, you're going beyond training for your job. Talk a little bit about your training and what you've been doing uh, with that. Yeah. So that's one of my life passions is, is training for sure. And, you know, now I'm starting to kind of take my love of, of training and health and wellness side of things and kind of mold it and blend it into work as well. And, and hopefully represent Canada in what they call these, you know, world police and fire games. Mm -hmm. And that's basically where emergency service personnel come together every two years, whether you be a firefighter, a police officer, EMT, all those different things come together and compete at a, at a national level. And it's, you know, I believe it was supposed to be 2021 was going to be the next games and that has been canceled due to COVID. And then, so now the next one's going to be slated to 2022. 
And I thought to myself, you know what, like I, I, I do all this in a way of preparing so that I can be able to protect people. Why not be able to, you know, why not try and see how I could do and represent the country, represent the force uh, on a national stage and hopefully bring more awareness out there to uh, police officers and emergency responders and what we're trying to do. Cool. So what events would you do? I'm still working through that myself. And, you know, there's a, there's a bunch of different, all your normal sports too. You know, you have options of there's volleyball, right? The baseball, track and field events. I'm really interested on the strength side of things. So something like a powerlifting field where I, you know, I've been, I have never competed, but you know, I have been training for many years and I, I think that I would just enjoy doing it. And then there's also another event that I would be looking at called TFC. And it basically stands for toughest competitor alive, which has to do with a whole lineup of all these different sports so they got you doing 100 meter swims they got you doing sprints rope climbs obstacle courses different weightlifting movements so just kind of an entire kind of totality event which i thought to myself that that sounds really really hard because how do you train for everything like that right so i thought that'd be fun too i love it that sounds really hard but i thought it would be fun too (laughs) i thought it would be fun too i'm gonna remember that about jeff shear absolutely i'm gonna read this that recently you achieved a personal best i have to say this because this blew my mind you ran a sub five minute mile and you deadlifted 500 pounds in the same day what in the world? Jeff, that's incredible. Yeah. I, M- Michelle, I completely lost my mind is what happened there. Like it was, it was last year, early in, in the spring, I believe. And, and I was looking at, you know, switching up my training program and setting some different goals for myself and all of, all along the way, a lot of times what people end up thinking is that, you know, you kind of have to specialize as an athlete, either you have to, you know, you know, be light, mobile and fast kind of thing, or you have to be, you know, to gain muscle, put on muscle and you can be strong, but it's, it's hard to be all these different things at once. Mm. And I thought to myself, oh, geez, I wonder, I wonder if I could try and, and, and disprove that kind of thing. Right. So then I ended up doing some research into it and it turns out, you know, a goal of running a mile in under five minutes is an extremely fast time. It's very few people can do this. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, it's just a mile in five minutes. How that doesn't seem too bad and end up going out and trying it. And Oh God. Yeah. That, that was, you know, we're talking, I would consider myself to be fairly fast. I, I feel like I'm super lucky to be a decent runner and I was nowhere near, like I was closer to six minutes, never mind five. And at that point, of course, I had already set this goal for myself of, okay, I'm going to see if it's possible for me to, you know, demonstrate that you're going to run fast under five minutes in a mile, and then, you know, still be able to be strong and pick up, you know, a, a barbell and lift at least 500 pounds, kind of unequipped as they would call it. And so that's what I kind of set out to do. And it ended up being extraordinarily challenging, but also rewarding. And what I was kind of learned from this entire experience was that, you know, as humans, we're capable of so much more always. And for me personally, I, it, not just physically, I need to make sure that I'm always trying to 
develop even mentally too, right? Learn, be a constant student of life. And that applies to everyone. It's just so, so satisfying when you kind of live life like that. Absolutely. Well, we are so thankful to anyone who has taken the path that you've taken, but the way you've taken it, Jeff, is above and beyond. And I think when we, when I think of this, what I would think I will absolutely remember from our conversation for me, what I'll take away is when it's hard, it can still be fun. And that's important because lots of things in life are hard. Sometimes being a parent is hard. Sometimes being a good person is actually hard. Some days we just don't feel like doing what we do. And that's hard. And when life gets hard to be able to say, you know what? It's hard, but that's an opportunity. And if I actually throw my whole self into it and have yeah. fun doing it, yeah. what a difference it can make to everyone around us. And, and that's, I, th- I really feel like that's a gift you've given us today, Jeff. You're exactly right, Michelle. Like that's part of what I believe in, right? Like you have to learn to love the process in whatever you're doing. Just learn to love the process because that end goal, whatever you're trying to go for, that is just a moment in time, right? Same thing for the athletes, for for me, for training for something. If you don't enjoy the entire, you know, gaining up to that end point, then how are you ever going to be successful? Uh, We're going to have some fun with some rapid fire questions. What is your favorite sound? There are so many things that come to mind right away. Like, and for me, when I think of my favorite sound, it, it's it's gotta be the sound of like a classic car or a muscle car or something like that. And I know that's different, but it's just a combination of, you know, the, the powerful engine and maybe the exhaust note. Cars have always had a you know very meaningful spot in my life. So I just hear that sound coming down the street and it it means a lot. What does being unapologetically human mean to you and why is this important? It's kind of understanding to me anyways, that humans are not perfect. We, We all make mistakes. We all fail. And I think we have to be okay with that. We shouldn't have to apologize for being human and, and failing. If everyone was running around and perfect, then wouldn't that, you know, make us some sort of robot or something, right? Like, so I, and I think that's important for two reasons to be, be able to fail. Uh, number one is we need to be able to forgive ourselves because when you do fail, if you can't forgive yourself, you're not going to learn from it and you're not going to be open-minded to the possibilities. And, I, and I'm not sure about you or the listeners, but I find when I do fail, I always learn the most. That being said, if if, we're, if you're going through life and you find yourself not failing, then maybe it would be worthwhile to reflect and say, maybe I can give more. So that's number one, is that we need to be able to forgive ourselves. And then number two, of course, is other people are also human. So therefore, they need to be able to fail as well. And we need to be able to forgive and, and get over that kind of thing. We can't be going out and judging others and thinking less of them just because when we gossip and whatnot, that gets nobody anywheres, mm-hmm. right? Instead, when somebody fails, how about, you know, reaching down, grabbing on, teaching them something, helping them, raising them back up so they can get back up on their feet. I think that's what we need to be doing as, as humans. Fantastic. Okay. You live in a pretty serious environment in your job and in your work. Anything funny 
you have a great, do you have a good funny story or? Okay. Well, yeah. So this is, <laughs> I tend to be more serious. So this pretty hard question for me, but immediately, you know, I got one story that kind of stands out. So I'll, I'll kind of fill you guys in. I'll set the store, set the stage a little bit for this. And uh, on the team's, as you know, we do tons of training and a lot of times we're doing advanced training, recurrent training back out in Ottawa. So a few years ago, we were out in Ottawa and we had finished, you know, some hard week of training and the team had gone out for dinner. Right. So, so we were out for dinner. The guys were having a great time. Everything was good. And we're going to head back to the hotel. So we all jump in a van and, Uh, you know, this van, I got to try and explain it to you. It's a big van like this thing. There was me being the designated driver. I was a driver and probably nine or 10 other teammates piled into this thing. This van's huge. So we're driving down the road and they're hooting and hollering back there, having a great old time laughing. I'm just chuckling away at myself completely sober. Right. And we're going across this bridge. Wouldn't you know it? It's a police check stop. The OPP has set up, the, the red lights are on, Ontario Provincial Police are set up and they're doing a check stop, right? Checking for sobriety. So I pull up, officer, really nice member comes up to the window and Michelle, before I even have a chance to provide him with license and registration, if you wouldn't know it, one of my teammates from the back, you know, excellent member, excellent operator, he yells out, he's hiding drugs in his beep kind of thing. Like basically in, you know, in a certain cavity, my face goes beat red. I'm like, Oh my goodness. Is this actually happening right now? So I don't even know what to say or what to do. They all think this is hilarious. Yeah. So it gets better. This officer asks me to step out of the car. I'm like, okay, okay, here we go. He, I do. He takes me back to his police cruiser. So now he has no idea who we are, no idea who I am. Puts me in the back of the car. I'm in the back of the police car. And, and he's, and he's reading me uh, a breath med. And now I'm thinking to myself, oh man, is this ever ironic? And, you know, cause back, you know, St. Pierre, the paw, I'm actually a trained impaired investigator. Like I'm a trained um, <laughs> qualified technician. And I do this all the time. I've done hundreds of breath samples. So I'm thinking how the tables have turned, right? How the tables have turned. Mm-hmm. So he, he gives me the approved screening device and I, I grab a hold of it and, and uh, provide the sample. And it's of course all zeros all across. And yeah. he, he kind of, he's like, what is going on? I fill him in. We have a good laugh about it. And I'm super embarrassed. And I get out of the car and I'm walking back to the van. And, you know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, my turn, right? My turn. So I walk up to the window and I completely just put on a straight face. I'm super serious. I don't say a word. I put the keys on the dash and the guys are just, I basically say, sorry, I got to go back to the, I got to go back with the officer. And I turn and I walk back to the police car. And now, Michelle, you could just hear an absolute pin drop in this van full of previously laughing and, and, and you know, excited guys. And now they're thinking, like, what is going on? So I didn't keep them in suspense for too long. I got to the kind of the back corner of the van, wheeled around, poked my head back in the window and just started smiling. And 
So I jumped in and we carried on back to the hotel. And, and this was a few years ago now. And we, that story still lives to this day. Awesome. What does hope mean to you, Jeff? Hope, hope is, is really a belief in possibilities, right? And just thinking that there's always a chance. And when I think about hope, is that it's something that can't be taken away from you. So it, it's ultimately a choice. I get to choose whether or not I have hope. People don't get to take that away from me, which is kind of unique in itself. And I, I think that has something, you know, to do with the, maybe hope is being manifested right from the heart, right? So I think that's kind of what hope means to me. And what I will tell those that are willing to listen though, is that I found it, it to be beneficial. If I find myself hoping for something, I usually try and take a step back and, and reassess what exactly my plan is here. Because if, if hope is my best plan, then, you know, maybe I should try thinking about a different plan. Maybe I should do something different, right? You can't just hope to get to the Olympics and just magically get there. you got to have a good, a good uh, route and a good strategy. Great advice. What is your biggest takeaway from the great pause that COVID has created? That is a really good question and a really relevant one, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I guess I would start that my answer off to it and that I just feel incredibly lucky and grateful that, you know, I, I am still healthy and, and those that I know are, are still healthy. And, and my heart just goes out to, you know, those who, you know, maybe aren't so lucky and have had the virus affect either them or someone close to them and in their family. And some of the biggest takeaways that I'm getting from it is how much of an impact a person, a person's attitude has, mm. right? And that kind of all comes back to the fact that we choose to be happy, right? It, it, happiness ultimately comes from your own actions. So even though COVID is terrible and the virus is you know, not a good thing, we as humans and people need to try and find the positives in them. So, you know, and even though we, there's going to be positives, I don't care who you are, right? Try and just think about it for a second. You know, COVID happened. Well, you know, that's okay. I now have the opportunity to work from home. I get to see my family more. COVID happened and ah, it sucks. You know, but now I got the opportunity to take up a new hobby. Mm-hmm. So I really think being a po- having that positive mindset is something that is a big takeaway for me. And, and then learning that, yeah, it, as people, we got to be flexible and adaptable to change because you never want know when it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. When COVID happened, it kind of gave most of us this opportunity to be more creative. It has forced us into that creativity. And which I've talked about with a couple other people too, is just how kind of it gave us that gift to open up our own inner creativity in certain situations. Awesome. Who is the bravest leader you know? Why is that? And what elements of humanness do they display and allow others to display? There, you know, there are so many brave leaders that I know of. I would have to say it is, it is an RCMP commander that I know and have been, uh, working with, I guess, for the last five or six years. And this individual is basically what we would refer to as an incident commander. 
And what that is, is not only is he an attachment commander and responsible for that whole attachment, but he is also responsible for leading on our critical incidents as far as what's going to happen. And ultimately, he is responsible for the result of that incident. So this commander, I've known him for the past five or six years. And, you know, I, I don't know the whole story, but I, I'll try and do my best to kind of tell it. He was speaking to some of our selection candidates, right? Same thing as what I went to when I was first joining the team. We were holding a selection course and this commander was there speaking on leadership and, and kind of getting ready to send them off with some words of encouragement. And at the time, no one realized it, but he had actually suffered in a very serious medical emergency. Like he had a, a brain aneurysm basically I was walking around with a ticking time bomb. Nobody knew it. Like he was, I imagine feeling something, but to him, it was still important enough to, to lead and to come in and deliver this kind of speech and, and speak to these potential future ERT members. And to me, finding out about that after the fact was not only scary, but just, it was, you know, awe-inspiring. And then because from what I understand, to survive such a, you know, a medical condition like that, they say it can be even 50% chance of being fatal. Not only does he come back and to continue to lead, but he comes back with a vengeance and he becomes an endurance athlete, a very, very good one at that. And he literally starts leading from the front and all of his detachment members are just looking up to him in just incredible awe, which is just I don't do his story justice and I apologize for that, but it, it, it is just so incredible when I look at his story and the way he was able to, you know, basically take something so sad, so scary, terrible, and just grow and become even better of a human being as a result from it. Then all the people at his detachment see that. And I can certainly say that he is, you know, universally loved by you know, by the people underneath them. Well, he sounds incredible just the way you told it. So thank you for that. What is an example? I mean, we've seen, we've seen it all around us in our frontline workers and all of that, but an example of the best in humanity that you have seen during this time. Yeah. Best, the best in humanity. That's, I'm really happy that you asked me that question. And because again, it just gives me an opportunity to bring awareness to exactly what you're saying. It's my brothers and sisters in the emergency services, the, the policemen, the EMT workers, EMS firefighters, and especially the healthcare industry, right? The nurses, the doctors during this unprecedented time, you know, I can't imagine, especially at the beginning when they wouldn't have had any kind of idea how serious this virus was and their families would have been worried Unlike us, they don't have the option to work from home. So I just really hope that, you know, we all remember to be grateful and to not, not let this go unnoticed and never forget what uh, this kind of sacrifices the, the healthcare industry is making. Who are two or three people who have influenced you and how did they impact your life? I've been super fortunate to have an amazing family my whole life. So right off the bat, I'll say, you know, my mother, she taught me a lot, most especially 
you know, just to be positive. So I'm always trying to be, have a positive attitude and that patience is really powerful. She's such a patient person. And I draw from that all the time. You know, secondly, my, my father, he is an absolute problem solver. He is just a, an absolute wizard when it comes to fixing things, to making situations work. And I truly believe that I was able to take some of those lessons and then kind of apply them to my field of work in the policing universe. And, you know, there's an individual that I would also recognize in Regina, Saskatchewan. His name is Gary Redhead. And he is a business owner of a very successful company called Redhead Equipment. If, if you kind of imagine they sell, you know, combines, heavy equipment. And I had the opportunity to work with him prior to the RCMP. And what I realized from him was even at his level of success, being the CEO of this company, and literally I just was walking around sweeping the floors and, you know, cleaning vehicles kind of thing. The way he treated me when he was in the position that he was taught me how to be humble and the importance that, you know what, you can still lead and be successful and still treat everyone with that same dignity and respect that, that is expected. Uh, incredible. Jeff, thank you for being here with us for this time and for sharing a perspective on an occupation that many of us only can imagine. It's better hearing what it's like than just imagining it. And um, we want to, I just want to thank you for, you put yourself in harm's way when you need to. And uh, in that, just helping everyone around you. And that has totally convinced me without a doubt that you are a hero in our midst and you've been an incredible guest for us today. I'm definitely, you know, no hero, Rochelle. I strive to be one every single day. And that's, you know, that's not something that I can actually think I can ever achieve, but I try. Right. So I'm just super honored to be on here with you guys and, and, uh, and share the word. So thank you. There you go. Constable Jeff Shear, a real life RCMP emergency response team member, right here in Manitoba, leaving us with optimism, encouragement, and motivation to choose happiness and make life what we want it to be. Next week, we are staying on the uh, front lines, so to speak, from emergency response to a firefighter, Gord McInnes, who has fought more than just fires to continue in a stressful occupation for the good of us all. He will share his story. Listen to yet another open and honest journey right here heroes in our midst thanks again jeff and thank you for listening